Hello and welcome to Sprogcast, a radio show all about pregnancy, birth and early parenting, hosted by Karen Hall and Mark Harris and supported by Pinter and Martin. Welcome to episode 12 of Sprogcast, in which we discuss attachment parenting. I bring you voices from Doula UK Conference and we speak with Nicole Hasty about kangaroo care. I'm Karen Hall and my co-host is the ever popular Mr Mark Harris. Ever popular. You must drop these comments, Karen. <laughs> You know I'm a you know I I have latent narcissism. Um so I do enjoy the popularity to a certain extent but it's a little bit embarrassing. My co-host is the humble and possibly slightly overrated Mark hey, Harris. Hey, now that's the Karen I know. <laughs> Welcome Karen. How are you doing generally? I am generally doing absolutely fine on this beautiful day. Yeah. Oh, it's nice here. It's nice here. I traveled um where did I go? I I went to a workshop on Sunday in Cambridge and I left at six in the morning to dense fog and got there four and a half hours later in dense fog but uh, kind of later in the day it it brightened up so you know I did a 10 mile run on Saturday morning in dense fog I've not sponsored you yet Sponsor me, Mark. Sponsor me, everybody else. That's justgiving.com slash wokingmnct. Yeah. Well, who, 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 are you, who are you running for? Um, I am running to raise money for local breastfeeding peer supporter training. Yeah. In desperately need of, of support, let's be frank. You know, there are peer support projects around the country that are underfunded or not funded at all and in, in threat of folding up. And cuts to children's centres and um groups and just all sorts going on so you posted recently about i think it was the south of yeah i was down there doing a conference and uh, they just heard that their funding had been cut yeah and i do some work with the breastfeeding counselors in the north part of hampshire and their funding is also being cut and it's been a well used much appreciated surface for such a long time it's absolutely devastating that 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 should be drawn to a close because simply because the policymakers and the funding people don't get what they do. Wow. I, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd maybe have more understanding if we were seeing our longevity breastfeeding rates going through the roof. But we're not. And yeah. We talk about it every episode. You know, the Lancet open letter. You know, anything you want to read will tell you that we're not doing great when it comes to breastfeeding. Um, you know, so I just don't get it. I, uh, it's much like the trend over the last 20 years towards closing down standalone birth units when the mm. evidence is is heading in the opposite direction the policymakers are seem to either be ignoring it or you know struggling to find ways of implementing what the evidence is suggesting would be a good way forward yeah it, and it is simply because they don't get it we're almost speaking a different language and in fact that's what um i, I don't want to go into specific details of of who said what but um when I'm speaking to colleagues who are being asked to classify the people coming into their drop-ins as whether they have a general problem or a, spe- a, a sorry a general or a complex problem, right. um, because actually the the what we're being told is that the, the complex problems need to be dealt with by health visitors, and complex problems can come in as a general. Um, finding breastfeeding painful, or I'm really tired, right. or why does my baby cry all the time, and when you actually use the counselling skills that you've been trained for years in, um, which is not a comment on no. health visitors training, but perhaps they don't have the time to do that, you find that there is actually a complex problem underneath yeah. that. And it's simply not that. I was going to say, who defines complex problem and general problem? That's the, well, quite. that's the issue. And, and who are the professionals in the best place to, to offer support with that? Now, I, I, it's a long while since I trained with health visitors, but I have done over the years. And I've had health visitor friends who have gone from midwifery to health visiting who have been, you know, quite shocked at the level of input they've had around breastfeeding and breastfeeding support. Now, these are midwives who have become health visitors. You don't have to be a midwife to be a health visitor. So I am wondering no. if there are any health visitors listening, you know, get in touch, have a chat with us about the kind of support and training you got with a view to being able to support women who have inverted commas complex problems with breastfeeding. You know, it might well be yeah, people be like you, Karen, who are specialists in, in this area are the ones who are uh, most suited for supporting uh, people with complex problems. 
It does make you doubt yourself, though. It does make you think, well, maybe I'm not as knowledgeable as I think I am. The, the, I, I think that, you know, health visitors are specialists in some areas, but pretty much uh, generalists in many areas. You know, they have to be because in many ways they're kind of gatekeepers and signposters to other services. So I wonder how many health visitors would consider themselves breastfeeding specialists. Well, yeah, exactly. You know, so. Hence the name. Yeah, I get it. You're not an expert, you're a specialist. And we also need to mention our sponsor. Spodcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Pinter and Martin, an independent publishing company specialising in pregnancy, birth and parenting, psychology, nutrition and yoga at pinterandmartin.com. That was one breath, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you health visitors out there and anyone who's listening, get in touch with us, will you, on facebook.com slash sprogcast. It's been incredibly busy on Facebook, partly because I put some fairly controversial stuff Ooh, up there. But we had some comments even before that. I am, aren't I? And we got responses from Zoe Crossley Woodman, who said she liked hearing from wonderful advocates of birth like Mars and Virginia, and Melanie Cresswell, who also enjoyed listening to Virginia, and then just lots of things on our um as responses to some of the articles, so we'll come back to that in yeah, a minute. Well, I know I'm not allowed to have favourites, but I thoroughly enjoyed Virginia's interview. I, oh, so did she's, I. She's a raving, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way, you <laughs> know, she's an advocate for women and midwifery, student midwives. What a great interview. What a great woman. Yeah. Um, another one on Twitter, I had um, uh, some conversation with Emma Rosen, who admits to binge listening, which Ooh. I loved the idea that somebody would just back to back. Like I list, I, I watch um, bad TV back to back. Yeah. She's been listening to a great podcast back to back. She particularly liked our LGBT episode. Yeah. Um, and we've also had a request from Sean Regan for an interview with Dr. Amy Brown, who actually we're already planning to speak to her. Hey, it's a good point about the LGBT episode. You know, there are some sound qualities on that, but, you know, I feel that's one of our most under-listened to episodes. So it's, it's nice to have that being pointed out for sure. Just on the subject of sound quality, it is a difficult thing. I don't think um, people necessarily know, certainly when, when we were talking to Pinter and Martin about um, our new arrangement, I found that people were quite surprised that we're actually sitting in different cities. Yeah. It's laptops, the only way it works because you're so bouncy and difficult to get on with. <laughs> I'm not in throwing distance here, so I always feel safe. That's so <laughs> unkind. I'm joking. We've only ever been in the same room as each other once, haven't we? We had an opportunity. Uh, I'm talking about this Saturday, and of course, this is going out after you've been at the Dooley UK conference, but uh, we're recording beforehand. You lucky, you lucky person going to the Dooley UK conference. <laughs> I'm very, very excited. I'm excited about it, but I'm also, like, feel really important because I've got a press <laughs> And you've got to get some interviews in. Hoping to chat to whoever's there. Um, I, I kind of want to prioritise people we haven't already interviewed. There's no way I'm not talking to Mia. And actually, I've gutted because I've lent her book to somebody and I would have liked to take it and get it signed. Uh, well, there'll be other copies there. It's, it's only set, I think it's selling for about £5 at the moment. Yeah. But I've we'll got get... my eye on some others. I might actually buy some Pinter and Martin books instead of just waiting for them to sit them. Buy Pinter and Martin books? I don't books. do that very often. They're our sponsors. <laughs> well, I'll go and make big eyes at Martin and see what happens. <laughs> Loads of stuff going on on Facebook and Twitter. Keep it up. We want to chat with you. Um, we did promise a copy of Mark's book to um, one random interactor. And um, we've done, using very scientific methods, a draw of all the names. And Mark has picked, can you remember who you picked? I think it's Elise uh, Marie Hodent. That's right. So if Elise would like to get in touch with us um, and drop us your address, Mark will get you a book. And if you let us know if you want it signed, what name to sign it to and so on. Yeah, spell the name. <laughs> oh, God, it's I've got so much trouble. written I'm, on I'm, the screen. Oh, Mark. it is, I know, but I'm borderline. <laughs> oh, I should be able to read it. I'm borderline dyslexic. And the amount of times I've spelled a name wrong is so embarrassing. I expect that just makes it all more individual. Shall we move on to looking at our um, articles? Yes, please. And I need I need you to help me. With what? Well, Lynn Murray on the psychology of babies. Mm. Um, her credentials are impeccable. Yeah. I just got a bit confused with the opening two paragraphs. Yes. 
You weren't the only one, were you? It seemed to be contradictory of what else she was saying. Yeah, and I've I've got the book. I've got it actually right here, the, her book, The Psychology of Babies, um, because I saw her speak in Reading last year. And it's a really interesting book, and I love it because it's got photographs all the way through. I don't know if you've seen it or if you've seen Social Babies. It's on my list of ones to buy. She backs up everything she says. She supports it all with these kind of photo sequences. It's like reading a comic sometimes. It's and you, you see, like, the baby is looking at an object and the mother is moving the object around. And... It's kind of it's really goes quite deeply into the psychology of babies and how they grow and learn and develop and um, particularly how they develop attachment. Mm. But it just seems to me, and this was the impression I got when she was um, doing our study day as well, that she can't quite let go of that cultural um, element of it where um, we're still going to say you should or shouldn't parent in a certain way and her section on sleep for example says um that after so many months you shouldn't allow the baby to nurse to sleep anymore because they will be basically developing sleep associations so there's that oh, assumption isn't there oh, okay that, you know that that division between good sleep associations and bad sleep associations yeah and you know how that's defined uh, yeah I, I and the the challenge is that's always going to flow from our own uh, imprinting uh, story anyway you know you know most of the things that turn up in my life as shoulds and shouldn'ts have a history uh, in my own life family connections and culture it, yeah it's very difficult the other thing of course is is that the anchoring you know the, the whole idea that I'm anchored to an experience outside of my awareness is is kind of natural for human beings you know, if you're a driver and you're thinking about anything else, you know, you're looking around, you're driving and the, and the light turns red, you instinctively stop because you're anchored to stopping when the light turns red. Yeah. So it's it's a human phenomenon. So the point that she's, I think, making, because I haven't read the book about associations with sleep it is a good one. But, you know, because we, we do derive our identity, our, our sense of who we are as persons from those early associations that we that we make it's like food isn't it you know attitudes around food and children you know and and that potentially sets up associations that will last a lifetime I mean I jokingly say and my mum used to she, she used to tease me about my weight at a very early age she used to say we used to take to school in a wheelbarrow you know and it was a joke and she didn't mean to hurt me but I've way yo-yo weight dieted for the whole of my life until a year and a half ago it's hard to tease out cause and effect there. I don't think you can. I, you know, that's an ongoing debate we have. You know, you, you cannot arrive at, at cause and effect, I don't believe. I, I believe you only ever point to correlations between effects. Yeah. You, know, uh, you know, that my catchphrase, evidence is not to be believed, it, it's to be tested. All evidence is to <laughs> be tested in our experience. I know. <laughs> Let me read you this bit that it says in the book about um, sleep. So this is from Psychology of Babies, page 159. First, it is useful when establishing settling to sleep habits if the parent starts to settle the baby only when he or she so shows signs of beginning to tire. Well, that's completely sensible, isn't it? Yeah. You wait till they're tired and then you start your bedtime routine in inverted commas. The next thing, she goes on. Second, it is helpful if a set quiet routine can be developed that the baby enjoys before the settling itself begins. Well, yes, it is helpful, but it's not necessarily easy or straightforward. Yeah. And then she goes on, finally, and of particular importance, to whom I'm asking, the baby's ability to manage falling asleep himself is best promoted when parents are not actively involved, for example, by feeding the baby or by holding and rocking him to sleep. This last point applies because the baby quickly learns to associate the act of falling asleep with what is happening at the time, etc., etc. It's the old Rodfi Road own back, isn't it? Yes, it is. I, yes, it is. But, uh, but she is making an attempt to to point out the association between what's going on and an environment suitable for sleep. Now, I'm not advocating what she's saying, but there is a logical process in what yeah. she's saying. And, and I know that it's it's based in evidence as well. Yeah. And it has a cultural dynamic, of course. If we, we live in a society where most parents are, most homes are two income homes. 
you know, family schedule with both parents working, issues around sleep. This is maybe one of the reasons why it's such a controversial area. Mm. You know, we don't we don't have the situation where one parent is choosing, you know, not to be economically uh, active yeah. while the children are growing. It's just difficult to do that in in our cultural context. So sleep becomes an issue in in so many families. But then even in families where um, one parent does choose not to be, what what was your phrase? Economically active. Active, uh, like. I like that. You know, when my uh, late wife was asked what she did for a living, she'd say, I'm socialising five homo sapiens due to <laughs> yeah. changing the current world system. What do you do for a living? <laughs> it was a conversation stopper. They go, oh, I'm just a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> and what do you call 25 lawyers up to their necks in cement? I don't know. Not enough cement. <laughs> Do you know they've stopped? They've stopped testing um, medicines on rats. Apparently, they use lawyers now. Oh yeah. Apparently, there are some things that even rats won't do. <laughs> enough <laughs> the old jokes. Sorry, people don't dial in to listen to us. Uh, dial in? Who dials in? People uh, don't download this to hear our terrible stand-up. I know, but you can you can edit it. I'm going to. So let's talk about 10 problems with attachment parenting. This article really got people going. And it kind of links back to the last one. I mean, for example, uh, the author makes the point further on in, in her article that, that how many B's are there of attachment parenting? Uh, nine. The, is it the nine B's of attachment parenting? Yeah. And she makes the point that those nine B's are not essential or absolutely true in the context of a baby forming a secure attachment? Mm. Well, I say, of course not. I'm just Googling. Dr. Sears says there's only five Bs. Wikipedia says there are seven Bs. Um, These Bs we're talking about are things like birth, breastfeeding, baby wearing, bedding, um, which is a bit of a stretch. forcing it, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Belief in the language of your baby's cry. Um, beware of baby trainers and balance so (laughs) well these things quite quickly can morph into absolutes certainly when people are reading evidence and forming beliefs about it you know we've spoken about this before where the belief itself has a sort of like a moral flavor to it yeah and then from a moral base we start saying unless you're following these bees you're not attachment parenting and you'll probably do long-term damage to your child. And I think that that is a logical jump too far because we have plenty of evidence about brain development and attachment and sensitive responsive parenting. And we have things like Bowlby and Harlow and lots of good psychological stuff that we can refer to, but to generalize that and apply it to all babies and all parents and say, if you are not doing these things, then you're not complying with this evidence. Yeah. I just think that you, you can't. You definitely can't. And, and a lot of the evidence is suggesting extreme cases of neglect or the lacking of uh, touch. You, you know, the Romanian studies, you know, mm. where, where babies were, were exposed to high levels of cortisol because of highly stressful situations. And, and we have a sense from the evidence that, the amygdala of those babies becomes is bigger than babies that have experienced secure attachment. So you because know, the, of the increased stress response. Yeah, because of the increase of cortisol. So those babies go on to have a heightened sense of fight. You know the four Fs of the amygdala: yeah. fight, Ooh. flight, freeze, and just the four Fs and reproduction. <laughs> that- <laughs> Another gag, but you know, so so that that overgrown, if you like, amygdala, then leads to stressful responses in in the world generally. My adopted son, don't want to talk too much about it, but he comes from a very challenging background. So his sensitivity to transition points and to things that are going on around him is heightened. So he's he's it, he develops that stress response, which which inhibits his connection to his forebrain at a lot lower level than a child who's experienced secure attachment. So those things are very real things, but the evidence are in the context of some of the extremes of neglect, if you like. Mm. So applying those evidence to sleep training or other um, 
methodologies that I certainly wouldn't endorse is is it disingenuous I think and not well, fair that, that's an interesting one isn't it because we could we could take say the mainstream of parenting and say most parents are going to want to going to intend to and are going to actually be sensitive to their babies and treat their babies with love and respect and then there are going to be some at one end of the extreme who are going to do your however many B's they decide they subscribe to. And you will probably have some parents at the other end who really do treat their babies like puppies, um, with no offence intended to sensitive puppy owners. I don't know what you so, mean by that. What do you mean treat their babies like puppies? Well, kind of expect them to be trainable and oh, right. become independent at a very early age but even those parents are going to say this is what I think is best for my child yeah. aren't they well uh, it's a difficult one isn't it because there is a sense in which everyone is doing the very best they can given the resources they have and that's a little bit controversial because even those parents that are behaving in ways that we wouldn't perceive as them doing the very best they can, mm -hmm. in that moment, they are responding to the resources they, they have available themselves. So, so it is by definition the best they could have done. I see it, if not every day, very often. I see parents responding to children in supermarkets, in, uh, you know, uh, children that come to my house to play with my son who have responses are very you know the other day we had this chap in with with my son and my son went to the toilet and didn't wash his hands and this little boy said you must wash your hands and uh, and then he went on he said if you don't wash your hands you'll get a bellyache i we responded by saying well we prefer him to wash his hands but he has a choice about whether he washes his hands and he probably won't get a stomach ache now i know that's controversial but our son having a sense that he makes his own choices based on the information we give him, we want to do that as often as possible because we feel that's a pattern that will serve him well in later life. Don't get me wrong, there are stuff that we're very clear that we want him to do and don't want him to do, but it's the principle of him being an, aut an autonomous individual. You know, mm -hmm. we're nurturing that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I think behaviour often if not always, is innocent in the sense that the person doing it is doing the best they can given the resources they've, they've got available, and that's emotional, social, and otherwise. Um, do you think this, the label attachment parenting is helpful? Uh, it, I, the, the, the problem with all labels is that when you hear it, you think you know what the other person is saying, hmm. and that's never the case. You know, it's never the case. You know, the word itself is an anchor to referencing experiences that are outside people's awareness. And that's happening in conversation all the time. So you add a label to that. And as soon as I say I advocate attachment parenting, people will then do their own unconscious search and decide what I think about it. I'm put in mind of when I was working on the um, sleep forum of one of the large parenting internet forum things, working alongside a health visitor whose responses to parents' queries were quite different to mine. And I would, in that context, describe myself as attachment parenting. Yeah. Whereas the health visitor would be the absolute opposite. Yeah. Um, but I wouldn't, I'm, I'm not somebody who can say that I did all of these sort of 14 b's no. um no. for goodness sake i had a structured baby carrier i can't call <laughs> myself an attachment parent <laughs> i have no problem with the concepts of attachment parenting i think they're all good strong sensible evidence-based nice things to do mm. what i have a problem with is it becoming a dogma or a doctrine that people label themselves with or label other people without and then it excludes certain parents. So as, as I said, I, I would be excluded from this on some bases yeah. and not on others. A lot, well, a lot of attachment parents, apparently, according to that article, do not uh, take vaccinations. Right. And, and that, so you would definitely not be in that category. Yeah. But then again, are, are we making an assumption that if you're in that group, then you're obviously that kind of person? Of course. I, I, and and those that's one of the problems with headline labelling, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. It, the minute we we start to 
become dogmatic and have strong beliefs about stuff, this whole moral framework emerges. And then a, a parent is less than a good parent if they don't agree with what I think is the best for them. Mm. And that's never helpful because the minute I'm stuck in a dogma, I can't hear an opposing argument. So I've, I've recently read Mayan Bialik's book, Beyond the Sling, which is about her experience of um, what seems to me quite an extreme version of attachment parenting in that, um, you know, one of her many bees, and I don't know how to make this into a bee, but was to not use nappies, maybe bare bottomed. Oh, right. So no nappies at all? What, no what's, nappies what's at all. What's the reasoning behind that? She um, cites as an advantage of this her deep intuitive understanding of her child so she through ob- observing her baby could understand when he needed to go to the toilet and plop him onto a potty right from early on yeah and she's she found that that deep intuitive understanding she could kind of um generalize to all areas of interaction with her child yeah well i kind of i kind of I kind of get that. I, I mean, I've often thought that pe- people that have potty trained their children in inverted commas under 18 months are just responding to signs because the hypothalamus, I don't think, develops the ability to control defecation and, yeah. and, and the like until about 18 months. So if a baby's potty trained under 18 months, it, it's more like the parent has trained themselves to see. Well, the thing about reading this book was that she's so very passionate about her style of parenting that it does come across a bit as this is the correct way. This is the right way to do it. Yeah, well, it's it's hard for us as human beings not to be that way. The insight, I think, that, that I am experiencing reality, not directly, but through the internal maps I make of what's out there. And very often I confuse my internal story of the world uh, as what's real. And it, it never is. So I can understand that, um, people being really attached to what they believe strongly is real and true. Mm. It's, it's a complex job, this parenting business. That book, yeah, would you, would you recommend it then? Oh, I don't know. I, w- I think if somebody specifically asked me about attachment parenting, I would. I think for kind of the the mainstream antenatal and postnatal work I do with parents, there are other books that I think are more useful, like Margot Sunderland's um, What Every Parent Should Know. Yeah. I would probably give that out. That's the go-to book. Yeah. Because it strikes that balance, I think. And the, the version I've got has got lots of glossy pictures and the layout is very accessible. It kind of lends itself to dipping in and out of. Yes, it does. And yeah. also, it's far-reaching. It, it kind of takes you well into childhood. It's not just a baby thing. Yeah. We'd love to hear your views. Tell us what you think on facebook.com slash Sprogcast or Twitter at Sprogcast. And relevant to this discussion is my short interview with Nicole Hasty, who had an article in Juno about kangaroo care. Now, the sound quality is not great, but it is a very short interview and quite interesting to listen to. So here it is. I'm chatting with Nicole Hasty, um, who recently had an interesting article in Juno magazine about kangaroo care. Hi, Nicole. Hi, Karen. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for talking to us today. Tell us about what you do. I work as a sling consultant locally. Um, I run a, a sling library uh, and also offer consultations to parents. Um, but I've got a particular interest in working with parents at the very early stages of carrying their babies um, in terms of holding them skin to skin. Um, so the other side of my business is that... Um, we bring the VG Design Kangaroo Care Clothing over from Canada, which is designed to hold your baby against your chest so that you can do skin to skin with your hands free. Right, so like a sort of integral sling within the clothing. It is. It's, it's, it's like stretchy material. Um, it's made by a lady who had a premature baby herself, but who worked in sports design, so the clothing's really strong. But it has layers sewn into it that baby can fit inside, the same as if you're wearing a stretchy wrap, but you don't have to sort of do all the tying. It's just there ready for you. That sounds ace. What what would be the benefits of doing that? Well, I mean, kangaroo care is something that has become really people are more aware of it now, and it has absolutely massive benefits for both the parent and the baby. When we hold our babies skin to skin, it releases oxytocin in both systems, so that's stress reducing for mum, for baby. It gives them a, a strong sense of bonding and attachment. It enables them to sleep really deeply, which is critical for brain development. So the more time your baby can spend against your chest, feeling calm, feeling safe and connected, the greater cognitive development is going to be. Mm. 
I've just been reading Mia Scotland's book where she talks about the thrive or survive kind of um, states of, of growth and development. And she's talking kind of about, you know, grown-ups. But I was thinking that that was very relevant to babies. It's like epigenics. Often you've got to switch on the right genes to get your body working in the right way from a really early stage, the better your development's going to be. Mm. You look at sort of traumatising side of birth, sometimes for parents who've had a difficult labour and the separation from baby, you can sort of break down some of the, the issues that have been caused by bringing baby back to the chest and just holding them really close as much as you can. It was actually thought about as a, a life-saving thing for babies who can't access incubators, but when the doctors were looking at it, they recognised that all babies would benefit from it, and what's great is now it's coming into the Western world, we're recognising that we need to go back to more of this. It's, it's that whole thing about going back to basics. Years ago there was the article about the Australian twins where one of them kind of basically revived, came back to life through skin to skin. My colleague Lee... Um, had a little boy born in the UK, he's seven now. Um, he was born at 31 weeks and he was very unwell, he had a bleed in the brain. And they were actually told that he wasn't going to die, that they needed to say goodbye. Mm. Given quiet time to do that and she put him on her chest, it brought him back. It revived wow. He wasn't breathing on his own before that, he was breathing after a while, he was breathing fine. And he's now an amazing young man, you know, and that was down to mum being able to take him out of the incubator and actually hold him close. And wow. It's amazing, but it's also not amazing. It's just blindingly obvious as well, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, when we look at the fact that we've had to go back, we've had to relearn the, the, the natural way to breastfeed. We've had to relearn the need to keep babies close because of child-rearing practices that pushed babies away that wanted to have them independent from a very early age. It's only now that we start to break that down and recognise um, that that's actually damaging, that we need to keep our babies close, we need to respond to their needs, that things like kangaroo care are becoming you know, more popular. Mm. And, and the idea that, it's, yes, it's great for the premature and vulnerable infants, but also can be generalised to all babies. Yes, and it can be life-saving for those babies who are very unwell, but any baby being held skin to skin is going to have an enhanced development compared to a baby who is wrapped up and left alone and not given such close contact at all times. And it really is about where the baby is as well. Holding yeah. baby's arms, all very good, but doing some of this skin to skin, a baby is, you know, right against your chest. It triggers certain reactions that you don't necessarily get when they're all wrapped up and cuddled up in the blanket next to you. Mm. And would, would you say that it's good for new fathers to be doing that, not necessarily just the mother? I really think it is. Um, we often talk about the, the need for dads to have something to do if mum is breastfeeding. Dad has loads to do. He just wants to be there for his partner and just to enjoy the experience. But actually, if he can take the time to wear the baby against his chest, it's giving them both a bonding experience and the baby will be very settled. So if mum does need a little bit of a rest, Baby's going to be able to lie on dad's chest, have all their needs met. It's not like a second best option. It's just as good for dad and baby to be holding each other and spending that time together. I, th I think that's a, a massively useful tool as well for um, helping to alleviate that pressure for dad to bond with the baby by, say, giving a bottle or, or thinking that his only role here is nappy changing and bringing cups of tea. He can do something just as well as mum can. He can have baby there on his chest. He will also receive oxytocin. It's not quite the same... Um, sort of feedback pattern that a mum is going to get but they're both going to get those strong positive hormones and the baby is going to just get used to dad get used to his voice you know feel his warmth hear his heartbeat it's all things that give them that close connection it just sounds really nice <laughs> we want to look at sort of images of what dads think they should be doing it can break down the image that they should be the one who's the, you know, the strong one and doing all, all the physical things actually just holding baby close and having that big strong emotional reaction can be a great step on the path of being a really responsive parent yeah can you recommend any particular books or websites that would be useful for people who want to find out more about this and you can actually go onto our website the video design website we have quite an extensive explanation of what kangaroo care is and what the benefits are and it's got all the latest research on there to sort of explain physical developments neurological developments as well that can then benefit that way right so what's that website so that's vija-design.com Right. There's a series of blogs on there as well, and what we'll do on a blog is we'll often take one aspect of kangaroo care and go into more depth explaining what the actual benefits and things are. So there's, there's information on various levels there. Um, we also keep up things like a Pinterest board, which has all the latest research and, and news articles and things, and we'd like to see more about kangaroo care out there for all parents. Mm. We're, um, we're selling the idea of kangaroo care long before we try and tell you about our lovely products, which make things easier. But the key core thing is those benefits of kangaroo care and what parents can get from holding their baby every day, skin to skin. Yeah, it's been lovely to talk to you, Nicole. Thank you very much for giving us the time. My pleasure. Very nice to talk to you too. Thanks. Well, I think we should give a quick mention to Pinter and Martin. 
they're having a very busy month. Ephra Space opens in April. That's their new kind of community area building. People can have a look at the first lineup of events at ephraspace.co.uk. That's E-F-F-R-A-S-P-A-C-E.co.uk, which includes a listening party for each new Sprogcast episode in the bookshop slash cafe on the 25th of each month. That sounds oh, like cool that? We should go to that. Yeah. New books for April are Why Baby Wearing Matters, The Microbiome yeah. Effect, and a new edition of Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me, the paperback right. edition of A Passion for Birth, which is Sheila Kitzinger's autobiography, and The Peaceful yeah. Pregnancy colouring book and of course um, Sarah Ockwell Smith's book Why Your Baby Sleep Matters has just come out as well. Brilliant. Cool. I'm going to be running uh, monthly Birthing for Blokes workshops in Space from the end of April I think. Okay well Karen's been on a jolly at the Dooley UK conference and uh, coming up she spoke to some delegates and speakers. Take it away Karen. So I'm at the Dooley UK conference for 2016. There's nobody here yet, except... Nikki White. So hi, Nikki. Hi. What are you looking forward to? I'm looking forward to catching up with doulas I've already met and also meeting new doulas that I know from Facebook but haven't met in person. It's always nice to put a face to a name. definitely. I hope you have a lovely day. Thank you, and I hope you have a lovely day too. Actually, I found that that talk on birthrights was really interesting because I didn't know a lot about birthrights before that, so that's given me lots of ideas. And also hearing Mia come up with a new activity for my antenatal classes. Me too. (laughs) So I want to do something. Well, I'm not going to tell you. No. I'm going to wait and see and and work on it on the train home this evening. Good plan. Tell me later when you've developed it. Do you want to say who you are? Uh, yeah, I'm Sue Wallet from Nottingham. Thank you for talking to me. Thank you. <laughs> Would you like to talk to this broadcast? No, thank you. Yes, my name is Alex Heath. I am a hypnotherapist and a birth doula and an anxiety teacher. And how are you enjoying it today? I am very much enjoying it. I'm really very glad I came. I just made the decision late on in the week. Um, but it's just great to be in a room with so many women from different backgrounds but all with a very united mindset and yeah. passion yeah it's great good i'm glad you're liking it was there anything particular this morning that stood out for you yeah i loved um mia's talk really resonated with a lot of work that i do as well um and also elizabeth's talk about birthrights is you know it's fantastic that we do have so many resources um empowering women when we have a cultural system that, that so often works against um, us. So, so, yeah, I mean, it's just, just great to, yeah. to have those resources. We and they need to be much more aware of it. Yeah, definitely, mm-hmm. definitely. Um, yeah, yeah. Cool. Thank you very much. You're Here welcome. We Thank you. Do you have a message for the people? Do I have a message <laughs> for the people? Are you enjoying yourself today? I'm enjoying this. It's really good. What's been best so far? Um, lovely to see all the doulas in one place. Yeah. Uh, lovely to confirm what I kind of already know, but nice to confirm it. Oh yeah, always. Nice to get um, some evidence I can look up later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Some of the good stuff from Mia. Yeah. All of them are good. It's all good. Right. So yeah. Thank you very much. Oh, do you want to say you are? <laughs> well, I'm Joe Piercy, and I run Cookham Doulas, and I run Cookham Osteopathy. Thank you very much. Tell me who you are. I'm Sarah Doherty. What do you do, Sarah? I'm a birth doula. I've been tied up with Doula UK since 2002, on and off. And you're enjoying it today? Loving it. And especially that last one with Elizabeth, because I think birthrights are phenomenally fantastic. What did you take away from that one? I've heard her before, because I came to the European doula um, meeting. And I think it's confidence. I think it's listening to her and realising that as long as you've got evidence-based stuff behind you, you then have the confidence to stand up when you think something isn't right. Damn right. No, absolutely. (laughs) And I would follow that girl over hot coals because I think what she's doing is amazing. Brilliant. Thank you so much. All right. Bye. I'm Lindsay McCarthy Calvert. I'm one of the new Doola UK ambassadors. Oh, I've seen your name. (laughs) What what are you doing as a Doola UK ambassador? Well, um, I'm promoting all the wonderful things that Doola UK do and why Doola's 
are wonderful and magical and, <laughs> and how everyone needs one. Right. Um, and what have you been getting out of this morning? Um, I loved Mia's um, yeah. talk. Um, being a counsellor myself and counselling um, women, mothers in particular, um, yeah, her talk was extremely interesting and a lot of it resonated. This is Erin being noisy. Hi, yes, Erin. and a lot of it resonated with the work that I do with women yeah. and um, and overcoming some of the problems that women, new mothers, face. Yeah, resonated quite deeply with me, and I think that's something that I think that a lot of women really relate to. Have you got a book? Um, I haven't got a book. It's such a good book. I haven't got a book. I've got to get it. So I yeah. think I'll go and uh, over there. Yeah, I'll <laughs> go and uh, get her autographed coffee. Definitely. Good idea. Thank you for talking to me. Thank you. So this is Katie Edwards who's going to do us a poem. Thank you very much. So this one's called What is a Doula? So what is a doula? What do they do? Why would I want one as part of my crew? A professional birth partner? What's that about? Why don't you interview one and find out? Doulas come in all different guises. She'll give you information but never advises and you can expect information is correct. Delivered with kindness, compassion, respect, informed by evidence and truths, laying out options so you can choose the best course of action for you and your muse. She'll assert your truth and divert your fear. She'll show you love that's so sincere. She'll hold your hand if you want it held and show no judgment if you screamed or yelled. And if, so if you like the sound of what a doula does and you think one might be for you, just check out the Doula UK Find a Doula page and have a good look through. <laughs> so perfect, thank you very much. You're welcome. Catch up with you later. So I'm Kerry, I'm one of the new trustees of AIMS and AIM stands for the Association for Improvements of the Maternity Services. We've been around since the 60s and we do what, we, what it says on the tins, we, tin, we campaign for improvements in maternity services. Because at the moment we don't think the UK maternity services really give women the best chance to have the kind of birth they want, so we campaign to, to change that. And one of the ways we also do it is by selling various publications that can empower women to just know about what their options are and answer that question, am I allowed? That's our number one question, am I allowed? And it's the name of our best-selling book. We yes. say, yes, you are allowed to make choices about your own birth and your own pregnancy and your children. You've got quite a lot of books here today. Um, which ones are the popular ones? Probably the most popular one today is probably the Group B Strep Explained. Oh, really? So we have, um, yeah, Group B Strep is increasingly sort yeah. of high profile and lots of people are confused about what the options are about having it, you know, being tested for it, what they do if they have a positive test result, whether it's worth testing for it, what happens if you do get a GBS infection. And the, the book by um, a midwife called Sarah Wickham yeah. sets out, you know, the research and information and just tells women and their partners, you know, what, what their options are. That sounds really interesting. Is it, is it um, becoming more popular because of all the talk about microbiome and what have you? Possibly, possibly, because obviously one of the big things with that is, you know, if we increasingly use antibiotics all the time, you know, what, what's the actual effect of that? Yeah. And people don't really know, but there are bits of research that are saying, you know, it might be destroying microbiome and it might be destroying the so-called good bacteria as well. Yeah. It is, it's also high profile because there are lots of campaigns about saying women should be routinely tested for group restrap, which yeah. does not happen currently in this country. So I think it's something that women just want to know more about so they can make a, a proper choice about what's right for them. Yeah, yeah. cool, thank you. Um, and what's your website, your vintage website? Our vintage website, <laughs> yeah, www.aims.org.uk and you can donate online as well to get that website into the 21st century. And wouldn't it be there. brilliant if people could be on your website as they go in? Definitely, because the stuff's there, yeah. but you know, not all there, and we want it to just be better at helping women, also like in the very early stages of pregnancy. Yeah. Hopefully they can now yeah. get more information that way. Fantastic. Thank you, Kerry. Thank it's been you. nice to talk to you. And to you. Uh, my name's Lizzie Jarvis. I'm Organisational Manager for Doula UK. Doula UK is at this sort of um, Bridget Baker, the, uh, the, the, the former chair, um, talks about it as entering into the sort of the teenage years of Doola UK and uh, there's there's definitely a sense of um, a big growth spurt going on for the organisation not only in numbers but in sort of um, scope, scope uh, ambition, vision, um, funding, yes funding, um, we've got this uh, raffle today to raise money for the access fund, we helped uh, just under 100 women last year through the access fund to have the um, help of a doula. 
And who accesses the access fund? The access fund um, is available to people who meet um, sort of standard criteria for being on a low income or being on certain in a certain receipt of benefits or having been referred by a charitable partner and that might be someone like Refuge or more and more uh, their refugee organisations so um, women arriving in London or another city um, pregnant and alone um, and needing the support of, of someone and obviously a, a loving um, doula woman is a wonderful person to be there yep. so the access fund pays the doula's expenses so they're all doula uk members and they give their time voluntarily but we the access fund you know pays for their travel and parking and all of the other things so it's a combination of the great altruism of our members and um the people who give to the fund and we generate money to the fund through our access days and introductory days and things like that and today for example running a raffle where all of these prizes have been donated by our um, sponsors, uh, stall holders, some of our members, some people who, um, Elizabeth, who's on our board, who's donated um, a, a prize. Okay. Yeah. Um, and we just did a, a tally, we're on, what was it, 290 we've raised this morning. 290 we've raised so far. So that will, that will pay for... That's one birth. Yeah, so we have a, an expense allowance of up to three hundred pounds, but an awful lot of our members don't use okay. that full that don't use that full amount. But going forward, we know that there's massive scope to work with, for instance, an organisation like Refuge, where we could have a central referral system. So at the moment, it's um, it tends to be caseworkers know about the access fund and they will refer in. We don't have the the administrative scale to um, be a you know, a full charitable partner with Refuge and get, you know, hundreds of referrals a year at the moment. But we'd like to be, all good. we'd like to be set up to do that um, and resourced to do that. And we'd like to um, do more than pay the basic expenses of yeah. our doula members because it, it you know, it's a, it, it's a very, it's often, as you can imagine, a, a, a very um, difficult set of circumstances yeah. that a, a doula might be um, going into. So, yeah. um, we'd like more and more of our more experienced members to be able to to do that and for it to make sense for them from a business point of view because at the end of the day they're all yeah. running their they're own businesses yeah yeah and if you were working with someone like refuge you'd need so much more capacity yeah. and i guess being able to pay people would if we yeah, could pay right. people more doulas would be able to donate their time yeah i yeah. mean for some doulas if they i know a lot of doulas sort of work on one birth a month well if that one birth they're only getting their expenses mm. and it's their living. They, yeah. they can't do that. Mm. So it would be nice to expand it because then, obviously, we'd have more doulas available to give more women the help they need. Yeah. yeah. Um, the doula movement has overcome quite big hurdles in uh, the clinical world mm. and in the, uh, in the maternal health world generally that we're, we're at a sort of a frontier where uh, we can start to work really... Uh, you know, cohesively with uh, hospitals, uh, maternity services, um, and that kind of opens opens up the opportunity for for doulas. I think so. We could, yes, we could train doulas. In, we, you know, we could transfer the core curriculum into different settings uh, and adapt it for different settings. Um, again, that's part of a bigger vision for how do we resource, how do we move forward from an education point of view. So. Is there an unlimited number of approved courses that mm. meet our core curriculum and honour our code of conduct and our philosophy mm. that we could have this sort of almost infinite reach? Because at the moment, um, an opportunity for us as an organisation is there's a there's a number that I haven't been able to pin down where it comes from, but that there's a thousand doulas working in the UK and we've got around 640 members. So where are those doulas and why aren't they our members? And what how can we engage them? And sort of normalise doulaing more and more. I mean, I, I, it might be the circles that I move in, but I'm noticing that people, a lot of people have heard the word at least, mm. so they know what it is. We want it to become less, we, obviously we want people to know what it means, but we want it to be less associated with a, a very narrow demographic and more appreciated for its uh, the, the evidence-based case for it. So we know that doulas or any woman of, of experience and capacity mm. with the right nurturing sort of Skills. way of being can will lower the risk of intervention will 
impact uh, will, you know, will, will result in a more successful initial breastfeeding, continued breastfeeding, lower rates of uh, postnatal depression. You know, there's all these sort of, in this world, everyone wants metrics, you know, everyone wants to be able to measure something. And what's wonderful is we can measure it. But again, every, every line of conversation you have, you get into another area where we can grow. So we did a study a few years ago that's been repeated uh, by Nurturing Birth. Uh, so we've got some statistics around the the um, the case for doulas, but of course we could do a lot more around that. We could do a lot more research, mm-hmm. um, which will in turn affect all these other things. Will in turn affect our ability to get a- outside funding for the access funds. So we're on a path towards charitable status as an organisation. Part of the reason for that is because with that comes the ability to access pots of money where mm-hmm. we can do big pieces of work, whether it be growing the access fund, uh, carrying out bodies of research, something that started out around someone's kitchen table is now this, this, you know, very structured, structured organisation. And, um, but the challenge with an organisation like Do The UK is you want to be more structured and more accountable, but you don't want to lose that. You don't want to 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 lose the heart of it. Yeah. Yeah. You want to keep the essence of being around that kitchen table. Yeah. And, and women's own empowerment. Yeah. So it's, it's all very exciting. Sounds like it. Thank you. Lindsay Middlemas. So you were saying. So how is your volunteering at the moment? Okay, off to Calais and Dunkirk on Monday with Orangely Palmquist, um, who's an anthropologist from America. And she actually specialises in lactation studies. That's what she teaches. Um, but she's doing a research project on the infant feeding crisis in Europe and um, inf- refugee crisis and infant feeding in that crisis. Um, with Carleen Gribble, who's a member of the Infant Feeding Promoted Seas Core Group. So we're going out to Calais and then Dunkirk to meet the volunteers at the Women's and Children's Centres. And hopefully we'll have time for Orangely to do a research interview with them. And then we can talk to them about their not-so-perfect infant feeding practices. Fabulous. But we know that, well, both places, they're asking for donations formula they're not specifying what those donations should be and they're asking for donations of bottles and we know certainly in Dunkirk bottle feeding they were using bottles rather than cups but they couldn't wash the bottles okay so is there any breastfeeding being encouraged for women to relactate in Calais and Dunkirk Mm -hmm. not at the moment that's part of what we want to talk about so yeah Women get told an awful lot of nonsense by all kinds of people. One mum I met met out in Dunkirk before Christmas, she'd had flu, I think. We had a real language barrier, but I think she said she had flu, and the doctor had told her to stop breastfeeding. Oh, gosh. And now the baby was being hospitalised with diarrhoea. Yeah. Head desk. Yeah, it's like you, you just can't make up this nonsense sometimes. And there's no big NGOs out in northern France other than um, Medicine Sans Frontières. It's the best there is. As far as I can work out, they don't seem to do anything to control infantry here. Mm. Which seems to be one of the basic starting points Absolutely. to keep the babies yeah. safe. Just trying to get in there before they get their processes properly established in Dunkirk. So we can start with things like, well, if the baby's over six months, they don't need formula at all. So let's just not go there with that risk. You see, it's all the things that don't apply in the UK. Yeah. So instead of formula up to one, it's formula up to six months only. Why, and Why is that? Um, because the risks outweigh the benefits of giving formula compared to your basic fortified UHT milk. Right. Okay. The risks from unsafe yeah from practices. Yeah. I mean they'll have they'll have powdered formula with the instructions not in their language yeah. so they don't know how to make it out they'll have powdered formula at different stages and they won't know which is they won't, know, won't necessarily know sometimes they do sometimes they're very fixated on my baby's on number two or my baby's on number three um, 
And yeah, I mean, England and Kirk, until they moved to the new camp, they were all living in damp tents that were flooded. So not exactly a nice, cool, dry environment for people from there. They were using bottles that they couldn't wash. So just unbelievably dirty. So yeah, as soon as you can get the babies off the formula, you get them off the formula. Yeah. Even if they're not breastfed. Um, and in terms of donations, I guess first infant milk, ready-made, preferably in disposable bottles. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if they are going to have to take donations, and all the all the big charities that have got proper policy in place that follow the infant feeding guidance won't accept donations. But if you've got a small charity that's got limited funds and no big charities offering to pay the bill, the bulk buying formula, then you do kind of think, well, I'm not sure there is an ideal solution. But yeah, if they are going to ask for donations, then it needs to be 200 mil cartons of ready-made formula and nothing else. Cool, thank you. That's really interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I've just done a workshop with Kate Greenstock. She's going to tell you about it. So I, we've just run a workshop at the Doula UK conference, um, helping doulas to really define who they are in the core of their being so that they can market really effectively to their right people. Um, and I talked at the beginning about how I want to live in a world where mothers' voices are heard and where women can speak out for what they care about and um, where we can uh, be flexible and adaptable in how we work because it's not okay that there's an awkwardness about who we are as mothers because of the way we've set up the workplace structures and systems for ourselves. Have you read Mama by, um, I want to say Antonia Gambotta Burke, but I'm not sure if that's correct. No, I haven't. It's really good. I've just started it and it's, it's that. Mm. Um, Martin's got it. It's about valuing women and what we do and how we shouldn't have to hide yeah. behind anything just because we're we're not men. Yeah. Yeah, and that's really at the core of my business, but I particularly love working with mothers. Women, yes, mothers mm-hmm. even more so. Yeah. Like what is it that we bring that's so rich and so different mm-hmm. and so fresh actually um, into the world? What what perspectives do we hold that ends up shaping other things mm. this sounds really just interesting mm. and it was a good workshop thank you very much, thank you very much. <laughs> thanks for talking it. to me hey karen how are you doing i'm doing very well thank you mars have you been enjoying it oh i've been loving it but you know the best bit mm. but tell no one I'm up next. I'm up next to talk, so that means. No, excuse me. We can't talk toilets. We're talking (laughs) miles. Um, But you know, the best bit is I'm about to have a room full of women having to listen to me, hanging on your every word. I don't know that they'll be doing that, but (laughs) but they're definitely in here, and I'm locking all the exits. Right, keep them in. Good luck. Great confidence. Thank you. Sally Shelley. Hey Sally, what do you do? I'm a birth and postnatal doula. And how long have you been doing that? I've been doing that for just over 10 years. Have you been to the conference before? Um, yes. Yeah. yeah. What have you enjoyed most about today? Um, Catching up with the other dealers. <laughs> I guess a lot of people are saying that. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Good workshops? And just, yeah, the workshops were good. Yeah. 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 Um, just to reinforce that you're doing the right things and yeah yeah it's very affirming reassuring yeah Mm. absolutely yeah yeah lovely good i hope you enjoyed the last bit yes definitely looking forward to that so i'm erica from positive birthing for you uh doula and hypnobirthing practitioner a photographer oh yes and that one got so many hats (laughs) and um what have you liked today um the two workshops have been really good the indira lopez for tongue tie, particularly um, informative, and now I know much, much more. Um, reflection on myself and who I am and who I can be. It's been very good, and just organised. It's been organised really, really well. Mm, lunch was good. Yeah, lunch was yummy. <laughs> Here's Katie again. This one's about when I started baby wearing, and my friend showed me how to use a stretching. And I was really grateful because I had no idea there were so many different types. And then, um, and then I got really kind of really really into it, and I wanted to try all the different kinds. There's so many. I really wanted to know which one was the best. 
So um, this one's called My Mother Didn't Get It. My mother didn't get it. It didn't fit with her programme. You'll make a rod for your own back. Why don't you use a pram? That child will never leave you. You'll be carrying her till she's 12. I thought, that's another bit of parenting advice I'm going to shelve. You see, I'd put her down, she'd cried and cried, and no matter how hard I tried to bounce her on some plastic inanimate vibrating chair, she just wanted me to pick her up to let her know that I was there. And so casting the advice I'd heard aside, I picked her up, held her with pride. I wrapped her so my arms were free. It's like a hands-free kit, but for a baby. So if you're starting out, there may be things you'd want to know. There are tutorials on YouTube to help you carry like a pro. You can find a local sling meet, a library to try or hire. There are baby-wearing consultants to help you and inspire. You can find the one that suits your shape so the weight is all spread out. It's really very comfortable when your carrier's well thought out. And if you start when they're tiny, you build up your muscles stronger. So when they're bigger, you can carry them for longer. I'm a bit of a rebel. I don't like to appease. But then it all happened and I got sling disease. I started with a stretchy and got a buckles too. There are so many types, I just couldn't make do. You can wear them on your front or back or even on the side. I didn't want to leave any type that I had not yet tried. My ties, fly ties, ones you can customise. Checking out forums, searching with my praying eyes. Ombus, wing slings, with padding or without. Full buckles, half buckles, I'm carrier devout. Yearning, churning, it's all got a bit concerning. Learning about all these slings has made me quite discerning. And then there's the world of wovens and all the different blends. I wondered if my wish list was ever going to end. They come in sizes from two to eight. For me, the fours did dominate. Not too long and not too short. The perfect length, the right support. They come in themes, all colour schemes. They're in my dreams with matching seams. Ah! I wanted to put them all to test in my quest to find which was the best. But now I'm pleased to say I'm over it. My obsession has expired, but my passion for keeping babies close will never be retired. Cause carried babies cry less, the evidence says it's true. And wearing them close felt to me like the thing that I should do. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're welcome. Right, now is the time in our podcast when we endorse something. Uh, Karen, what have you got? Well, I've been thinking about this long and hard, Mark, and I've um, <laughs> got a book by Annie Gethin and Beth McGregor called Helping Your Baby to Sleep. And it's, I would say, a nice little book that um, comes very much from what I'm going to call an attachment parenting point of view. It very strongly discourages the more, um, what, what are they called, extinction methods of yeah. getting a baby to sleep. That's a, It does have um, a really good explanation of the mechanisms of sleep, like cycles and survival needs, and um, also a good discussion of what exactly does normal mean, really mean when we're talking about sleep which if you go back to the episode we did on sleep was what Dr. Charlotte Russell was saying, wasn't it? About kind of yeah. the amount of time babies are likely to sleep for. So it gives you the scientific basis of responsive parenting. And I really liked how accessible that was. Um, but then it goes into quite good practical sleep strategies that which they call slow fixes. Right. It's I not like about the quick fix, is it? Nothing in parenting no. is a quick fix. No. So that's my recommendation. Oh, I like that. Well, I, well I, I'm going to recommend something which uh, I have personal interest in. Uh, we, we've spoken about Mere Scotland before, but I'm collaborating with Mere Scotland uh, to put together a, a workshop. That Our first one is going to be on the 9th of June. And the work, workshop is exploring whether what we've done around birth debrief has really had an impact on uh, the women that say they experience birth as trauma and that the workshops predominantly for birth professionals uh, Mia is going to be outlining signs uh, that should prompt a birth professional to signpost a woman to more specialist support uh, along with at least one or two techniques that that, that any birth professional can can use uh, with a woman who's expressing um, a sense of 
I'm struggling with the word trauma, but, you know, a woman who's suffering after birth, it's a couple of techniques that a birth worker could introduce to the woman so that she can use herself uh, or her partner for that matter. And I'm going to be talking about uh, the multi-level nature of communication and the stories that every human being is living in. And that's happening on June the 9th. And uh, as soon as there are details about it, I'll post it on the page. Excellent. I, I, do you know that I want to endorse something else? It's got nothing to do with birth, although it has. I've just finished the book *Long Walk to Freedom* by Nelson Mandela. I watched a film *Invictus* after it, you know, which is about uh, South Africa winning the World Cup at rugby. And I was mm. constantly reminded that this man, who spent nearly 30 years in a small cell, was able to come out of prison without bitterness or hatred. And, and was just brimming with love and forgiveness and, and managed to surmount his own strong feelings, which I'm sure he had. Uh, it just moved me a lot. And it, it, it kind of challenged me about how discussions can go inside the birth world, where some people can be quite uncharitable and unkind to those that have different views to them. Uh, and uh, Nelson Mandela's ability to rise above that is almost inhuman in its scale. And, um, you know, if I'm going to endorse anything, forget the workshop and uh, watch <laughs> Invictus and read Long Walk to Freedom. Uh, it's a book that's going to affect that's me great. for a long time. Cool. Lovely endorsement. Thank you, Mark. Um, that's all for this episode of Sprogcast. We hope you'll join us for the next one, which might be about the microbiome, vaginal seeding, that sort of thing, if we can find the right person or people to speak to about it. If you have any suggestions or comments, do get in touch via Facebook or Twitter. Thanks for listening today. That's facebook.com slash Sprogcast and at Sprogcast on Twitter. Thanks for listening. It's goodbye from me. And bye from me. You've been listening to Sprogcast with Mark Harris and Karen Hall. Sprogcast is supported by Pinter and Martin. For all your pregnancy, birth, breastfeeding and parenting reading, check out pinterandmartin.com and enter the code SPROGCAST for an additional 10% off. Sprogcast is produced by Karen Hall with technical assistance by Pete Hall and our branding is provided by Nick Hilditch.